If you have your Bible, turn to the book of <clears throat> 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, a short passage out of that chapter, verses 23 through 25. A really interesting passage, as you will see uh, when I read the text. I use this passage in a course that I teach at RTS on preaching. I, I do one of the preaching courses. It's uh, how to preach expository sermons out of Old Testament narrative. And I give, midway through there, I give the students this text and uh, see what they uh, do with it. Um, and so I thought to myself about a year ago, I, you know, I, I need to maybe just do something with this text. So, um, for better or for worse, uh, this is our text this morning. Uh, and so if you have your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is about Elisha. The he in verse 23 is Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have that through Jesus Christ you receive us and we thank you for the truth of your word that continues to nourish us and sustain us as your people and we thank you for this privilege and opportunity we have to read your word and to hear it and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work for apart from his work, these words will fall flat. And so we pray that you would be at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just to read this story probably brings questions to your mind. A man who is jeered by a bunch of small boys curses them. And then they are destroyed by some bears. Is this man reacting personally to an attack and exacting revenge on a group of boys because they are jeering at him? Is this something we would want to teach our children? Is this something we would even want our children to read? Is this teaching them bad habits? And bad manners. Some scholars dismiss this tale as a childish tale that has no real serious point to it. So what in the world is going on here? What are we to learn from this passage? Obviously, this is the word of God. It has something to say to God's people. And it also teaches us something about interpreting a passage like this, we have to put it in the context. 
And so we'll start by putting this passage into its context to then go to see from there what God is teaching us today. At the end of 1 Kings, Elijah, okay, got Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is nearing the end of his prophetic career. He has been a prophet who has stood against the false worship of Baal. He stood against King Ahab and King, uh, Queen Jezebel who have pushed the false worship of Baal. And his ministry is coming to an end. Elijah is nearing the end of his life. The main question at the beginning of 2 Kings, the main question in the chapter before us, 2 Kings chapter 2, is who will succeed Elijah as the prophet of God? Will it be Elisha? And so Elisha is trailing, following Elijah around, hoping to be there when God translates Elijah into heaven. And that's what happens. The second part of 2 Kings chapter 2 confirms that, yes, Elisha is the successor of Elijah, and he possesses a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that's why you get many miracles during the ministry of Elisha. They were there in Elijah's day, but there are many more in Elisha's ministry. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, the sons of the prophets recognize that Elisha is the true successor to Elijah. He is the next prophet of God. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, in the chapter we're looking at, Elisha performs a miracle. Bad water is making the land unfruitful. Elisha heals the water. The true prophet of God gives life-giving water to the people of God. And then you have this incident that we read in verses 23 through 25. And this is not just, by putting it in context, you see this, this is not just a person reacting out of personal revenge to a group of ill-mannered boys. Elisha is not just any Israelite. He is a prophet of God. He is acting as a prophet of God. He is pronouncing covenant judgment on those who reject God's prophet. It's been made clear in the context that he is the successor to Elijah. He is the one appointed by God to bring the word of God. And so it's serious to reject God's prophet because you're rejecting the word that the prophet will speak and you're in reality rejecting God himself. Elisha demonstrates that he is a true prophet of God in his pronouncing covenant curse against those who reject the word of God from the prophet of God. This is not a story of personal revenge. It's a story of a people who have continued to reject the word of God over and over and over again. And you see the evidence in these small boys. 
And that's why this is not a childish story, but it's a serious story. It's a serious story because to reject the word of God brings the judgment of God. And that's why we must be diligent to receive the word of God. You may wonder, how did these small boys, as they're identified here in the text, how did they get to the place where they're rejecting the word of God? What's going on here? We want to see several things. The first thing we want to see here is a rejection of the word of God as a result of accepting false religious beliefs. To understand this point, we have to talk about the significance of Bethel. Bethel is the hometown of these small boys. It's the place to which Elisha is going. He's going to Bethel. And he's met by this group of boys. We learned earlier... In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 3, that there were faithful sons of the prophets who resided in Bethel. And perhaps Elisha is going to visit them. But Bethel is specifically known for something during the days of Elijah and Elisha. Do you remember what Bethel is known for? You have to go back to 931, about 80 years the kingdom of Solomon divided at his death because Rehoboam arrogantly said that he was going to continue the policy of his father in the harsh uh, labor that he had instituted. And this led to a revolt of the northern kingdom, ten tribes, under Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I became the first king of the northern kingdom. He led ten tribes in revolt, leaving two tribes of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam I was afraid that if his people continued to go down to Jerusalem to worship, which is where the temple was three times a year, you would go down to one of the feasts at Jerusalem. He was afraid that the loyalty of his people would be toward the southern kingdom, would be toward Jerusalem. And so what he did was he established his own system of worship. Dan in the north And here at Bethel, right on the way to Jerusalem, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. You can stop here at Bethel. Of course, the problem with that is that God had established Jerusalem as the proper place for worship. And so Jeroboam is setting up his own system of worship with golden calves. And his own priests. It's a disaster. It's devastating to the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom falls much earlier than the southern kingdom. And uh, think think about how many kings of the northern kingdom are evaluated as good kings. Zero. They all continued in the apostasy of Jeroboam. False worship became entrenched in the northern kingdom. And then you have Ahab and Jezebel coming along and pushing Baal worship as a part of that. 
The true worship of God was rejected and the false worship of God took hold. And that's the point. False religious beliefs are a substitute for the truth. People live their lives with an ultimate commitment to something. They may not consciously realize what that ultimate commitment is, but if someone rejects God and the truth of His Word, they will substitute something else in place of that, something that is false. That's the point of Romans 1, where Paul reminds us that people exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. In the northern kingdom of Israel, they had rejected the truth of God's word concerning the supremacy of God in his worship in Jerusalem. And they had substituted the worship of a false god. It still happens today. People reject God and his word and substitute a false religious belief in place of the truth. It may not be two golden calves. It may not be Baal, but it's still a false god. I think today it's the false god of self. I am the ultimate reality. I determine how I define myself. I determine how I define my relationships with other people. I determine what is right for me and no one better tell me differently. That's the mood of our culture. And it's become the normal way of looking at life. Not just the normal way of looking at life, the only acceptable way of looking at life. And if you're not on board with it, there's something wrong with you. These small boys that come out of the city to mock Elisha have been brought up in an environment where the true worship of God has been rejected for a false system of belief. And that false system of belief has become normal to these boys. It's what they've grown up with. They've not learned about God. They've not learned about his true character. And they're treating Elisha, the prophet of God, in light of what they've been taught, in light of the environment they've grown up in, an environment of false teaching. You know, they're not just innocent little boys. You can read this passage and say, oh, no, they're not innocent little boys who are a bit rambunctious. They are boys who have accepted as normal a false way of thinking and they are living out that false religious belief. And the whole society of the northern kingdom has become impacted by the acceptance of this false religious belief. These boys are just living it out. In our own culture, the veneer of Christianity has been ripped away and people are bold to express what they believe, but that's a good thing. In many ways, that's a good thing. 
There should be a clear distinction between what we believe concerning God and his character and what others believe. There should be a clear distinction between what we believe concerning Christ and his resurrection and what others believe. There should be a clear distinction between what we believe concerning the great moral questions that we face today and what others believe. The challenge that we face living in the culture and society in which we live is that the false religious belief is accepted. It's normal. And we're in danger of losing the next generation. That's what's happened to these small boys. Just two generations removed from the false worship that was set up in the northern kingdom. There used to be a public service announcement. I don't even know if you've heard of what a public service announcement is. I'm probably dating myself here. Uh, There used to be a public service announcement that came on television at 10 o'clock at night. uh, And it went like this. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Uh, I would rephrase that. It's 10 a.m. Do you know what your children are being taught? We also see in this passage a continual rejection of the word of God results in a disdain for the word of God. In other words, this is not just a passive response that these boys make. It's an active rejection that brings with it a negative, hostile feelings toward the truth. This disdain for the truth of God's word is directed toward the one who brings the truth, Elisha the prophet. They treat him with disdain. They show disdain by treating him with disrespect. They call him baldhead. Now, we read that and say, what's what's the problem here? I mean, you know, baldness is not a problem. It can be very handsome in a man, right? Uh, It's like, uh, go up, you baldhead. What's going on here? Well, context helps. What was Elijah known for? Back in 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is identified as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. By calling Elisha baldhead, they are in essence saying, you're not Elijah. You're not the successor of Elijah. You're not the true prophet of God. This is a rejection of Elisha. As the prophet of God. They also treat him as unimportant. Go up. You bald head. Now this may have a double meaning. Go up could mean get out of here. We don't have anything to do with you. You're not important. We don't need to hear what you have to say. It might be a way to taunt or mock Elisha. Go up like Elijah. Show us that you're really the true prophet of God. Either way they express, we don't need you. We don't need the word that you proclaim. We don't worship the God who has set you apart as prophet. 
They show disdain to Elisha by disrespect. They show disdain by treating him as unimportant. They show disdain by an aggressive rejection of the truth. This is not a chance encounter. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him. Many commentators argue there is deliberate intent in their coming out of the city in order to meet Elisha. As one author puts it, Elisha is not ambling through town and these lads were casually hanging out in front of Bethel Billiards Barn and uh, had this confrontation with Elisha. No, they come out of the city to meet him. We don't want you here. It's a show of force. 42 of them at least, maybe more. It's a gang. They aggressively reject the truth. It's what they've been taught. It's what they've grown up with. It's exhibiting itself in their lives. Aggressive rejection of the truth. We've seen a rise in our culture of the new atheists. There's a term now to describe the new atheists. We've always had atheists. We've always had agnostics. There's nothing new. But the term the new atheists now applies to a group of atheists who are vocal about their rejection of the truth of God's word and see Christians as offensive. We are fools in their eyes for believing what we believe. They even say we are a danger to society because we believe these fairy tales. They have no concept that the church does any good in society. Whatever your view is on the tax-exempt status of the church, the tax-exempt status partly came about because the church was seen to be something that was good for society. Well, that's not the view anymore. They have no sense of the history of, of Christianity and the fact that it's Christians who, is all, who are always there to minister uh, in difficult situations to the poor, starting hospitals and all that. They see us as a detriment to society because we are deluded in our thinking. It's a reflection of the spiritual warfare that it wages around us. A spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of people. A spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of the next generation. The enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman at times in history heats up. Revelation 12, when Satan is thrown down from heaven... Because this, the child is born and is taken up into heaven, woe to the earth. Because the battle on the earth heats up. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that there are periods of history where society is geared to reject the truth. We have to be ready for this. We have to know what we believe, why we believe it. We have to prepare the next generation 
to face the onslaught against Christians, even in our own culture. Warriors for the truth, valiant for the truth, but leading with compassion, especially with your friends and co-workers. There are some situations that we can't avoid being labeled because in some situations you just read what Scripture says and you're going to be labeled as a person of hate speech. But with your co-workers and your friends, lead with compassion because they need to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. Many of us have been there in the darkness. And we've experienced the wonder of Christ and his glory. Finally, then, we see in this passage a rejection of the word of God results in God's judgment. Elisha's response in verse 24 is to curse them in the name of the Lord. This is not a personal vendetta. This is what prophets do, right? Read through the prophets of the Old Testament, the written prophets. This is what they do. Calling God's people to repentance and preaching the Mosaic Covenant to God's people. The curses and blessings of the Mosaic Covenant found in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and Leviticus 26. The prophets are preaching that to God's people. This curse is against the false worship system, the false worship beliefs tied up in the city of Bethel. And the two she-bears that come out and destroy and kill these 42 boys, this is not a haphazard random event. It's an outworking of God's judgment that he pronounced beforehand to his people. Leviticus 26.22, in, in a passage where the blessings and the curses of the covenant are laid out, has this, I will let loose wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. God tells his people back there at Mount Sinai that if you obey my voice, I will pour out such blessing upon you. You will not be able to handle it. But if you disobey me, a lot of these judgments will come as I try to call you back eventually you will lose the land in which I've given to you. And that's what happens with the northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586. God is calling his people back to himself. But one of those covenant curses is, I will let loose wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children. This is God's judgment because of the rejection of the word of God as God is faithful to his covenant promises. That's what's going on here. It's a great comfort to us because God is faithful to his covenant promises. And those of us who believe in God and worship Christ have the assurance that we will not ever experience the judgment of God. Praise God for that. He will be faithful to his promises. But it's also true that God's judgment is a terrifying certainty to those who reject his word. We don't know how that judgment will manifest itself. We don't have the same authority as Elisha does to call down on people God's immediate judgment. We don't live under the Mosaic Covenant. Praise God for that. We live under the new covenant established by the one who from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But we have the power of prayer. And we prayed together the Lord's Prayer this morning. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, that prayer has two aspects to it. We are praying that God's kingdom comes through the transformation of people's lives because they receive the good news of the gospel of Christ and they are changed. They're no longer enemies. They become friends of God. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope. But thy kingdom come also has that aspect to it, that as people continue to reject the word of God, eventually, whether in this life or in the next, eventually they will experience the judgment of God. So how should we respond? We should receive the word of God. With gladness. We should tell others about the truth that comes from the gracious God in which we worship. And we should seek to be faithful to that truth, teaching it diligently to our children because we are just a generation away. Every generation is just a generation away from apostasy, just like the northern kingdom of Israel. You think of the impact of a Christian family passing down the truth of the Word of God, and it impacts generation after generation after generation, and that's what we pray for, and that's what we hope for. But think of the impact of the falsehood and the rejection of God being passed down from generation to generation. That's what we have here in Bethel. It's been two and a half generations since that false system of worship was set up and think of the history of Bethel Bethel I mean it was a place where Abraham built an altar in Genesis 22 it was a place where God appeared to Jacob in a dream in which Jacob saw angels ascending and descending from heaven that was Bethel house of God the place where Israel in the days of the judges would go to inquire of the Lord where Deborah and Samuel judged Israel at Bethel a place of rich religious heritage. Now a place of false worship and apostasy. What happened? They rejected the word of God. They went their own way. And sadly, it happens today, doesn't it? We know of churches, denominations, pastors, institutions grounded in the Word of God, but have drifted because they've rejected the Word of God. Many of the universities of our nation were established as centers of biblical teaching. Harvard was founded in 1636 to train pastors. It's not its goal today, (laughs) as you probably know. Uh, Andrew Peterson, Andre Peterson, I guess, is uh, in World Magazine, had this comment about this type of scenario. Um, This did not happen overnight. It did not happen automatically. Pure and unadulterated religion devolved first into eloquent, pious lip service and finally into the rejection of the Word of God outright. But it occurred because the Word of God was not rigorously defended in a thousand little contests with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was what actually came along and uh, began moving people away from Uh, what the Bible said uh, to other things. As men becoming ashamed of the gospel preferred the praise of men and intellectual respectability. 
I teach at a seminary. Actually, I'm dean of the Charlotte campus. So I have a little bit of influence. Not a lot, but a little bit of influence. And I ask myself every so often, where will RTS be in 10 or 15 years? What are we doing today to ensure as humanly as possible that RTS will continue to be faithful to the Word of God? It's a good question to ask yourself. Where will the PCA be in 10 or 15 years? Where will Christ Ridge Church be in 10 or 15 years? Where will you be, spiritually speaking, in 10 or 15 years? We must be vigilant to receive the Word of God with gladness and to live our lives in a way that shows that we really do believe that the Word of God is the truth and it is life transforming. Let's pray. Father, we are so frail, so frail as human beings, so tossed about by the winds of the world in which we live, so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, so prone to leave the God I love. Father, we need your help. We need your help to be committed to the truth of your word, to stand upon it, to live it out in our lives, to be willing in difficult situations to speak the truth, with boldness, with winsomeness, with clarity. And Father, we pray for the next generation. We pray that we would be preparing them, not just teaching them the truth, which is oh so important, but preparing them for things that they may face in the culture in which we live. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us perseverance. We thank you for the assurance that Christ has won the victory for us. We know the outcome. We know that false religious beliefs of the day in which we live will not win the day ultimately, even though sometimes it seems like they're winning the day. We thank you for the victory of Christ and that he is working out his purposes even through the difficulties in which we face. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. You must do the work but help us to be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.